I'd like to bring to the stage uh, the person who's going to moderate. Um, Michael Coleman is a filmmaker um, of his own films, and he's also worked on, on this film as an associate producer and also with Brandon Vetter and Patrick Shen on other films. And um, he also has a really fascinating website called the Soundworks Collection, which appears to be a blog that has a lot of, you know, things about sound uh, that, that are really fascinating. So please welcome Michael Coleman. Well, thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. It's an honor and a pleasure to screen. And it's a challenging film to show to an audience because you don't know how to act. I remember the first time I saw it with an audience, the first few minutes of the film, you don't want to chew your popcorn. You don't want to drink your drink because just the, no the, the noise that you generate from that alone is pretty nerve-wracking. But I am so happy to um, have tonight the sound team, three gentlemen from Skywalker Sound who worked on this film. So um, please help me welcome Steve Bissinger, Sean Farley, and uh, Zach Martin. I'll say that um, Steve worked on Patrick Shen's, the director's um, last film, La Source. I, I think just to start it off, Steve, what, what was it like when Patrick first reached out to you and said, I'm doing this film called In Pursuit of Silence? As a sound person, what comes to mind when you think of doing a film about silence? <laughs> well, he sent me a cut of it, an early cut. I mean, anything where the central character is going to be about sound is going to be interesting, I think, to anybody who does sound for a living. So I was pretty excited about it. In fact, I was blocked everybody else out. I said, I want to do this. Let Patrick know that right away. When you, um, I think one of the beautiful things about this film is how sound, or silence is treated as a character. And for you, when you think of silence, not only working on documentaries, but feature films and TV and everything else, what are some interesting uses or good uses of dynamics and thinking of silence in a film to draw the audience in or to really make them think differently? Well. <laughs> it's funny, we were, we were just eating and we were discussing Michael Bay, which is sort of the other end yeah, the of spectrum, the yeah. and how that is just loud from beginning to end. And it actually, sometimes if you're trying to create something that feels loud, the best thing you can do is have, be very quiet right before that happens, mm -hmm. because it's a lot of loudness is just perception or relative change, I guess. So that's one good use. Um, I mean, silence can sometimes draw, really draw people into a scene, I think, you know, as another, I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts on particular uses of silence? Well, I think it can take, uh, I mean, it can take many forms over the course of a, of a film or, uh, or a documentary. I mean, you use that contrast to either draw people in or, uh, you know, add that dark or light, you know, shade to different scenes, and uh, it can be used very effectively that and uh, it was fun to play with it in this as well and uh, quite a challenge really I mean because yeah. there's so many quiet spaces with it so to to be able to uh, experiment with letting silence take uh, the many forms that it does and uh, what that really means in the different spaces so yeah. I think something too when you think of um, people who work on films there's this thing called room tone which is exactly what it is it's the sound of the room this tone that it generates and at the end of the shoot everyone's all right let's capture the room tone so we remember what it sounded like so we can when you're doing the editing i think for you sean who you're working on dialogue what is it like to think of room tone or thinking of dialogue for a film like this when 
I feel like every cut, every instance, you're listening so deeply. And what was it like for you being a dialogue editor working on a film like this? Yeah, uh, when Zach was talking about uh, the nature of silence and you know various ways to use it, it was kind of interesting because uh, <clears throat> one of the things that Patrick Brand and I talked about very early on as I was getting started was that scene in the anechoic chamber because I actually did record in there, <laughs> which was a little silly because uh, most microphones and the, the, re the recording gear that we use with microphones have a self-noise floor that's louder than the anechoic chamber. So the, they wanted to know what I thought with regards to using that sound that they had recorded in there, which was just gonna be noise or just going for actual silence in the soundtrack. And I argued for silence in the soundtrack because <laughs> even in here, you know, when that came up, uh, you heard the self noise of the speakers. Um, there's no way to really emulate the anechoic chamber in there. So why add more noise mm -hmm. into that scene than is already gonna be present. <clears throat> and that's uh, dialogue editing is I've always kind of described that as kind of a misnomer. Mm -hmm. It's less about cutting dialogue and more about cutting room tone. Um, because <laughs> when you're cutting between takes, uh, the tone of the room will change. And you'll have noise in the background as well. So really everything about dialogue editing, particularly on this one, was about eliminating those noticeable differences and doing some very fine tooth comb noise reduction. Like Pico Yer had a ton of sibilance and you know that whistly sound on the S and <laughs> George Prochnik had an inordinate amount of mouth noise. I've never heard that much before <laughs> in my life. Um, so I spent a lot of time, not so much you know trying to match takes like we would in a feature film um, or match between takes, but more trying to streamline things for Zach and Steve when it came to the mix because I knew it was going to be kind of a a tight schedule and the smoother I could make that for them, yeah. you know, those transitions are better. Maybe just to say the way this film, we did the, the, the process that we did on this is a little bit different than what normally happens where you do every aspect of the sound job and it just gets mixed. I, I was not available. They needed to make a festival date. So, and it was actually kind of great the way we did this because Zach um, and Sean went through and did a mix of just, you know, what, what Patrick and Brandon had, uh, had done so we had this clean we took the per see the first thing you want to do is take what was recorded on the set and get that to work as well as it can and, and make the most of that and they were sort of able to do that so by the time i started doing the sound design you know i had a kind of pretty good idea of what 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 they had what we had that would work and they had sort of shaped the soundtrack already so i was curious asking about the composer alex louis beautiful composition that goes throughout how did what was the discussion about spotting figure out where music goes how to build the dynamics into a mix like this? I have no idea. Yeah. I was not. Yeah. Never <laughs> that. I was going to ask. Did you guys have any discussions? That, um, that, that happened and, and I got, we got sent the music. I think it was, I mean, it, it happened pretty naturally. I and mean, they, they had all the, the music spotted by the time we got it. So it was, uh, I mean, it kind of came to us, but it was mainly trying to figure out how to get it to play naturally with and come in and out because it's so, uh, it's such a quiet and gentle, uh, and very thoughtful mix that way. So it just, it had to be very subtle with the way things come in and out and drift in and out without, you know, any kind of dramatic shifts necessarily, mm -hmm. but more easing in to things much more gently. And one other thing I would say about that is the biggest thing that changed, I think, from the mix that you did 
when I got, so by the time I'd done it, I'd filled out all the, you know, there was a lot of sound effects that supplemented what was going on to kind of put you in those ambiences. That stuff didn't exist when you did the mix, but one of the things we figured out at that last mix was to, that the music needed to kind of just, from the beginning of the film, arc up, but by the end of the film, gradually, gradually, gradually just kind of go away. The music it, towards the end of the film would kind of die away. That, that we'd created this sort of bell curve with the music in the final mix because we had all these ambiences at the end that I had built by the, that he didn't have when he was in the mix, so he couldn't have done yeah. that. But I think we felt like, I think that really kind of, that was like a key to unlocking the film because it leaves you in that mode of just listening to, well, it's not silence, right? I guess that's another issue. Yeah, and something too, in the first seven minutes of the film, or maybe the first you know sequence of shots in the film, it holds really long and I can first tell you- First 433? <laughs> yeah, that too. Uh, I, I would just say that there's a lot of variety throughout the film of different um, winds and textures and different aspects of silence that you guys are kind of presenting. Now, how much of production sound is there that was actually kept, stuff that Patrick captured when he was shooting this? I and mean, how much was then recreated, reproduced, and you know, kind of sound design? Well, I would say virtually every single shot was supplemented with stuff. Um, and it's hard to answer. I mean, it's, it's kind of a shot-by-shot shot thing. Sometimes there was great stuff in the production track. These guys did a great job of building out everything they could with that. Um, and then there were, there were scenes where it just, and this happens a lot with production sound, you know, what you, you know, they set up for a beautiful shot, but what the mic is picking up may not necessarily be the most optimal, you know, uh, oral experience of what that is. So in, in a lot of cases, I completely dumped all of the production sound and it depended, it depended on the situation. I want to open up the, to a few questions to the audience, but before, so um, what can you say as a take, I've seen this film many times, every time there's something else that I take away from it that it just sticks with me. For you guys, now seeing it again, what is it for you, what is it like for you to just to see this film? What are some of the takeaways, not only from just being, this is what you do for your job, but how does that influence your work also? Thinking of silence and the impact of it. Hmm. I mean, I would say, yeah, I, I think uh, even after working on this film and uh, it, it just and going through it again, um, it's the the underscoring of taking those moments during the course of the day to like, especially in our work, to be able to, you know, we uh, have a lot of uh, out in Marin County being able to walk around and just walk in the quiet for a while to to get that contrast and to be able to think for a bit and carving out that time over the course of the day, you know, whether it's in the morning, you know, on the drive to work or just to just take a pause and to not necessarily, you know, listen to music or, or anything like that, to just take a moment to, to kind of be in your thoughts and reflect. And I think that that kind of, that's what it underscores uh, for me. And for you, Sean? I think for me, it's uh, kind of always interesting how every time I see it, it feels like such a meditative experience because there are a lot of holes in the film where it's they're presenting you with imagery and sounds, but they're not necessarily presenting you with any information. And it leaves you a lot of time to sit there and just kind of contemplate. And you find your mind going off in very strange tangents. Like tonight, I was just, you know, that one of the, that last shot of the ocean, I just started thinking about because I spent, uh, not this past week, the week before up in Washington, hanging out with Gordon Hempton for a week, who's, uh, very prolific nature sound recordist and you know just thinking oh wow something i recorded would have worked great there <laughs> um but 
also just thinking about how it's, it was so nice to go up there and sit there and just actively listen to trees and a couple of sparse birds every once in a while after spending eight weeks on a mixed stage um, cutting effects and then yeah. knowing that I was going to come back and work on the trailers for video games, which are going to be very loud as well. It was a nice kind of, it was still work, but it was, you know, like Zach was saying, having a moment to take that pause. And Yeah. And I think from a work perspective, I mean, this is an incredibly unusual project in that they wanted a really quiet soundtrack. Well, actually, it's obviously, not the whole soundtrack is, is quiet, but there's a lot of very quiet stuff. And that was a real challenge because we're so used to, you know, in most movies and things we work on, you know, they want just tons of details and things, you know, just everywhere, filling it up with sound. And I really had to learn, I had, in doing this, I, I kept, you know, I do that and I listen back and I go, it's too busy. There's just too much going on. You know, like real life is not that is not that busy. Um, and also just the pacing of it, the length of the shots, you know, I think was really um, is unusual and, and, and challenging for, I mean, that first, I forget how many minutes, it, oops, for however, however many minutes it is in the beginning, but there's no dialogue or music. And to carry all that just with sound is a unique opportunity, I think. Yeah, as a I, I, who does sound for film. No, absolutely. Even, even knowing that it's going to happen, I'm st I still get nervous because it's just like, oh man, it's so uncomfortable to sit there as an audience member and not have any direction no one's telling you what to look at or what to do it's you're just kind of there with the moment and i think it challenges you in many ways so um were any of you yeah. uncomfortable in that in span? <laughs> just just curious yeah yeah quick quick question yeah so the question is have you guys ever been in an anechoic chamber what are your experiences by going in one i have not and i mean that's understandable because that's not a normal i mean even if you were the most you know centered person you know life is not that quiet you're not normally in that situation i don't think the closest i've come was actually editing on this the uh the engineer from bmw talking about the car yeah when i was cutting the dialogue i was like why does this sound so weird what am i doing wrong here uh, yeah. and it took me a few minutes to realize he's in an anechoic chamber or uh, close to an anechoic chamber because they're doing that and so all of the reverberations the reflections are just dying off from his voice, and it—it yeah. it, I was unsettled when I first started cutting that th that spot. I was like, "What's what's going on here?" It reminds me actually an anecdote for myself was uh, I rented a car in Burbank, got in the car, it was a hybrid, and I kept pressing the engine. I kept sitting there. I was like, "Why am I? Why is this not?" I thought something was wrong, and I didn't realize that it was so quiet that it was on, and it was just a totally different experience. And I think it's an interesting thing just to say what we're what we expect and you know, how sound plays a role in everyday life. And when it's not there, you think something's wrong when in fact it's just our, you know, it's our perception of it. So, and a perspective. So yeah, it's, it's I, th I think more and more, the more we're aware of it, the more it will affect us. We're aware of silence, you know, how, how it, we had that relationship. I think it comes down to when you guys are listening to sounds, you know, that's not working, that's getting better. And you keep kind of going through it. Like, how do you describe, because this is what you guys do for a living. What is it like making the association of a visual to the sound? like? What is it about your instincts that usually like, all right, everyone agrees this is the right, like whether you have a director like Patrick telling you it's right or you yourself, like how do you describe the relationship of the visual versus what you're, and what you're hearing? I mean, I, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, right? Like a lot of the shots in this film, really you're trying to put the person in that space. Although, you know, I mean, for me, 
you know, the way I might approach any one of these shots and say, if you put it into a different movie, it might be very different. I mean, Patrick, I think, really was making kind of an art film here. And, and I think part of the goal was to create sort of a meditative space, really, for people in the, in the viewing of the film. So I, was, I really was kind of trying to keep that in mind and kind of get myself into that headspace. But a lot of it, I mean, we've all probably sat in a situation. I mean, you know, you know if something sounds wrong, right? I mean, we all live in the, in the real world, so, you know. There are, there are times with film sound where you're really trying to create something that's over the top or many, many, many times, you know, I would say. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, for me, it's like, it's like the, the right guitar tone or it's the right, you know, it's like you're going for a given aesthetic that matches with, uh, you know, what feels right for the narrative, both of uh, the, the film and then, you know, what feels texturally like, it, you know, it agrees with what you're seeing. So, I mean, a lot of the time. So the next question is about translation. What is it like to work on this film at somewhere like Skywalker Sound and then even hear it tonight at the theater here in San Rafael? Well, I mean, we did, when we first screened it, I think the screening that you came to was at the Stag Theater up at Skywalker, which is just about as good as you're going to get and probably as close to true. Yeah. It's very, very, very quiet. So, like, when it goes to the Anacote Chamber and it's silent, it's... This room is, this theater is beautiful. I just pass off to, to these guys here too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I wasn't <laughs> yeah, trying no, to No, it's all right. The sound is really good in here. But yeah, you know, that's, that's I mean, there's very few theaters in the world that are like that. I mean, they've really, so I mean, like that shot yeah. in particular, I think when I, when I saw that in the Stag Theater up there, it really felt like the air got sucked out of the room. That's, that's the thing too. I just put out there for people who work at Skywalker Sound and they watch, I say, what films have you seen? Oh, I saw X, Y, and Z. It's usually the stuff that's screening at Skywalker because once you've been exposed, Exposed to that type of quality of sound, you really don't want anything less of that, and that's just you know, yeah, we become snobs. <laughs> <laughs> the sound snobs, but it says something, I, I think, to the extent of really asking more of the listening environment. You know, I think for me as a moviegoer, it's like there's some theaters I'll never go to because we all know it's going to be a terrible listening experience, and you know that's just unfortunate. But, you know, we wish it could be as great as it as it is here and other places. So. I think it just depends on the person, what they're aware of, and what they need in order to watch films like this. So the next question is about the text on the screen when it says plus or minus decibels 35, 40, 20, and also negative. How does that translate? What, what do those numbers really mean? Okay, so uh, <laughs> the numbers that are going up there, uh, the negative 13 dB, 85 dB, 82 dB, those are referring to sound pressure levels. Uh, typical speaking volume, I think the, the gentleman who was talking about the Anacoke Chamber, is to, or maybe it was Julian Treasure, is around 50 decibels, 50, 60 decibels. Uh, the threshold of human hearing is defined as zero dB. The scientific instruments can measure below that, though. So it's, there's a certain sound pressure level that we will, where we can't hear over our own internal self-noise. So like, speakers have self-noise, so do our ears. So when it's minus 13, that means it's 13, it's, you know, it's a logarithmic scale decibels. Uh, so it's those 13 steps below what we are capable of hearing as the lowest level of sound pressure. Yeah, uh, so it's uh, the, the cilia, the, the hair cells in your inner ear are always moving regardless of whether or not sound is actually striking you. So even if you go into an anechoic chamber, you're still going to hear something. You're going to hear the noise in your own ears, or you're going to hear the noise in your own body. The follow-up to that question is, do 
dogs hear differently? Do they hear different frequencies? How do they interpret this information? How do they interpret these sounds? Uh, it depends on, if, sorry, I'm a psycho. Keep going, I love this, this is great, keep going. I'm learning, I'm learning. Uh, dogs, it depends because they have a different frequency range than we do. They don't hear as low as, they can't hear the, uh, some of the lower frequencies that we can, but we can't hear some of the higher frequencies that they can. You know, I was just gonna say one other interesting point, I think about those decibel readings that were in all those shots is that Patrick, the director, I know when he was working with, with you guys that he was, he wanted to try to match we, yeah, we actually got out an SPL meter and measured when we were, were mixing it and tried to get pretty close to what the rating is. Yeah, we undid all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't think I didn't think it made. I mean, it's it's a great. It didn't idea. translate as well in a theater. It, it's yeah, just it that you know when you put it in a real theater, I think it's sometimes you need a little bit more. But we had a little bit of back and forth about that. Great. So the next question is about how you guys protect your ears for people who are every day using their ears for their work and for their job. How do you protect them? What kind of precautions do you take when it comes to noise? <laughs> Zach, what do you do? He yeah. can't hear. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry, what? No, uh, no I, earplugs, basically. Uh, we, I, I have custom earplugs that I usually wear if I go to a show or anything like that. I mean, or if I'm going to be going to a loud, uh, even like a loud outdoor event, I'll wear earplugs, typically. Same. I wear them also if I'm flying or if I'm going to be driving for more than an hour. I'll put them in because not only does it protect the hearing, but it also reduces fatigue. And generally in our work, I you know try to not listen at crazy volumes because yeah. <laughs> that's you know you're listening often to you know sometimes loud sounds. But I was just, I've met a film mixer in New York or earplugs from the time he left his house to the time he got to the mix stage because there's just too much noise in the outside world in. That's the only understandable way to you know, protect yourself is put earplugs in. So the next question is about what you guys learned from working on this film. What did you take away? Did you learn anything or did you just get more self-reflective in the process? I learned that I'm not very silent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'm sure I have all the same problems that this film taught, you know, checking my phone too often, just having, it's hard. It's really hard to really live what this film preaches, I think. Um, I agree. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yes. Yeah, I think for me it was the uh, the, the shot with the, the hospital uh, and uh, seeing how loud some of those environments can be and like how loud they've progressively gotten. And I guess I, you know, if I thought about it for a moment, I probably would have thought about that situation. But to have it pointed out was was kind of interesting. And, and learning that was uh, stuck out to me quite a bit. If we're going to go the surprised route, then I'd say for me it was the school when they were talking about the subway and yeah. Yeah. the effects on children's yeah. learning, but also the fact that they couldn't have this, the windows open in the summer because the subways are too loud, so the room is then hot. So you have all these things that are essentially impeding children's ability to learn. So the question is about the dialogue. When it comes on screen, it seems really loud. Why is that, and how did you guys manage the dynamics and the levels? So, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing. So yeah. that was something that was really difficult because uh, the, the, the dialogue level was right where it would be for any film. I mean, we exactly yeah. I didn't I didn't change that. No, no, but here's right. here's the and it gets to somebody's question about uses of silence in film. This film has so many silent or not silent, but very, very, very quiet sections that when when the dialogue would come in, the contrast is so much, it was really challenging to deal with that. There was never really like a perfect solution we figured out. Um, yeah, and the problem I, that you would have if you would lower it was you'd be decreasing the intelligibility yeah. in some, certain sections. 
uh, so you didn't want to have a lot of rising and falling yeah you know you didn't want to have bring it in low and then have to raise it up again for those places where intelligibility yeah. would be harmed there were times when you know I, and maybe you did this too we try to kind of maybe we ramp, eased it in. ease in a little bit but it's just such a drastic change from what you've heard before i think that's why it felt so loud so the next question is about Meyer Sound. Are you guys familiar with Meyer Sound? Are you familiar with some of the work that they're doing, which helps control environments and dampen noise for a better listening experience? Uh, I mean, I, I, actually, I, I do work for them as a filmmaker, so I know them very closely. But I, I would just say, like a lot of the speak, a lot of the Skywalker Sound speakers are mainly Meyer Sound. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a different approach. Uh, I think what what she's talking about is this restaurant Kamal in Berkeley, which is an incredible space. So they make they make the the restaurant dead quiet, and then from there they add the music back in and make it so that people at tables and whatnot can have conversations, which usually is a big challenge. Depending on I, I personally can't stand a restaurant that's too noisy; I can't hear someone across. So this is a way to create environments where you can control the space, and in this case, you make it you know like a really lovely dining environment. So. I think we were kind of discussing this a little bit. We were just, we kind of, in our discussion of Michael Bay, we got into a general discussion of noise. And I made the argument that I think noise in general, whether you consider it visual noise, auditory noise, it's those things that are distracting and unwanted. Uh, it's not necessarily the hum of a speaker or, you know, the train going by or the annoying bird in the morning who won't let you sleep. It's, it's all those things and i think you know i would argue that there are times when nature itself can be noise if it's something that you don't want to hear so we and, all have and a, conversely john cage was a big proponent of just taking in the noise of new york you know yeah at, at, you know that you there could be silence in that as well so it's a subjective thing and it varies on your circumstances and time of day or just where you are or your headspace yeah. i think I mean, it may also have something to do, I mean, I've thought also about, uh, you know, man-made noise versus natural noise. You know, I mean, one thing you could take from that statement is just, you know, if you could get rid of all the man-made noise, you'd be left with this baseline soundscape that we all share. Of course, we also all share the sound of jets going over and everything else now, because that's the world we live in. So the next question is about the choice that you guys made and the director, Patrick Shen, about the association of the visuals and what was being heard. So sometimes it was silent. Sometimes you'd have visuals that didn't necessarily match with what the sound design or the background textures are doing. What were the decisions behind this? Well, I, we took, so typically when we get a film, the director has already had a pass. In this case, the director also edited it. Uh, and they'll take a, they'll sort of, in, in a rudimentary way, lay out their sort of vision for the sound. So we take a lot of cues from what Patrick how he had laid it out. And I mean, really, you know, it is a film about, you know, silence and, you know, sound in our world. But it's also just an art film, I think, you know, just a beautifully made art film. And so I think, it, you know, not every aspect of it was meant to be literal, certainly in the sense of like, here's silence, you know. <laughs> Sometimes I think it's more just trying to kind of um, take you into a, into a certain zone. So when there was then when it was only music, many many times I think almost always that was the way Patrick had already sort of laid it out, you know, when we got his cut, and so I followed that. Patrick spent a lot of time. I, I remember talking with him about this because he, this was harder for him to edit than anything he's done before, um, and you know there were times where 
he would work four hours and then find himself in this space where he just really couldn't move forward in it because he was trying to explore a new new approach to making a documentary film. Um, so I think a lot of this and a lot of the, the flow of it comes from the artistic, the artistic exploration that he was engaging in, but also it kind of became, uh, there was a lot of his subconscious in this that he allowed to come out and occupy the space in the film. And that's kind of what we wound up with. And none of us wanted to, to fight that because the first time I saw it, I know. I just kind of like, wow, this is, this is really different. Um, and, and, I, and I thought beautiful. I mean, I'm not what I say beautiful. I'm not complimenting my own work, but you know, I thought it was a really beautiful choice personally that, yeah. that he made in, in places to do that. Yeah, I felt well, like it was pretty impressionistic that way. I mean, just to kind of like let us look at the visuals for a little while too, and like you know, go deeper into that meditative space. You know, to to not necessarily have to underscore it with. Um, the uh, you know like the traffic or people walking by or anything like that. It was also about just kind of going a way to go deeper in to to that moment and thinking like to be more contemplative and in in those scenes. I mean that's kind of how I felt you know going through it. Well, um, I'd love to close out tonight and thank uh, Steve, Sean, and Zach tonight for coming out and yeah. sharing some insight to this. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael.